0: In 1994, I began a custom of giving weekly evening public lectures to rare book school audiences, repeating more or less the same speech during each of the four weeks in which the school was then in session. In 94 and last year, 95, the title of my talk was constant and unchanging. Each week, the posters billed me as speaking on the state of the bibliographical nation, Now there are many ways that I get myself into trouble, and this was one of them, because in practice the actual content of my lectures was much narrower than this highfalutin title would suggest. In fact, my State of the Nation lectures dealt almost exclusively with matters much closer to home. The State of the Book Arts Press and the University of Virginia in general, and the State of the Book Arts Press's principal cottage industry. Rare Book School in particular. My 94-95 State of the Nation speeches disappointed many in the audience who thought that they were going to hear something that bore at least some resemblance to what the title of the lecture promised. One disgruntled listener later reminded me about a newspaper review that a critic once wrote after attending a recital in which the soloist sang a musical adaptation of Joyce Kilmer's poem Trees Trees went on for what the critic thought was a very long time and the soprano singing it had trouble with the high notes of the song which she consistently sang very flat the critic concluded darkly she should have sung bushes (laughs) I remembered trees and bushes a couple of months ago I was drawing up the schedule of this year's Rare Book School evening lectures and designing posters for them, and I changed the title of my weekly speech from The State of the Bibliographical Nation to something at least a little bit less globally pretentious, The State of the Bibliographical Neighborhood. When I actually sat down to write this speech, however, I found myself, for a change, thinking much more about the national and indeed international rare book scenes than about the local ones. Thus, I am sorry to inform you that the title of this year's lecture is every bit as inaccurate as those of last year and the year before. In 94 and 95, I was supposed to speak about the state of the bibliographical nation, and instead spoke exclusively about the state of the bibliographical neighborhood. This year, I am billed as speaking about the state of the bibliographical neighborhood, but in fact, I'm going to spend most of my time speaking about the state of the bibliographical nation, reserving local matters for CODA. Maybe next year I'll be able to sing a song called Trees that actually comes out Trees. It says leave a little pause here so people can leave. <laughs> so, the state of the bibliographical nation. A couple of weeks ago, more than 200 persons gathered in Worcester, Massachusetts under the auspices of the American Antiquarian Society to attend the third annual conference of SHARP, the Society for the History of Authorship, Reading, and Publishing. If I hadn't been here, I would have been there. Sharp it has a rapidly growing, lively membership comprising academics, librarians, and others with an interest in the history of the book. The new society has a quarterly newsletter and an electronic bulletin board, and it has plans afoot for a new annually published journal to be called Book History. Perhaps the most obvious aspect of the present bibliographical nation is that its demographics are changing. Book history has become a hot topic in academic, literary, historical, and sociological circles, and seminars and institutes and centers and such dealing with various aspects of the subject are springing up all over the place. As a result, the field of book history is expanding not only as regards the number of persons interested in the subject, but also as regards what is usually thought to be the subject. The field now spreads over a much wider subject area. This being said, a great deal of the new book history does look an awful lot like the old book history. The first five titles listed in the New Publications column of the spring 1996 issue of Sharp News, the newsletter of the New Society, are The Ahern's New Book, Book Collecting a Comprehensive Guide, David Blewett's book, The Illustration of Robinson Crusoe, 1719 1920. An anthology edited by Brewer and Birmingham called The Consumption of Culture, 1600 1800 Image, Object, Text. M. P. Kavanaugh's book, History of Holistic Literacy, Five Major Educators. And Shaw and Dale's study, Readability Revisited. Other English language titles listed in the Sharp newsletter, New Books List, range from Toomer's Eastern Wisdom and Learning, The Study of Arabic in the 17th Century, to Sally Mitchell's The New Girl, Girls' Culture, Girl's Culture in England, 1880-1915. Now, you would expect to find most of these books, and indeed most of the other new titles, listed in the Sharp newsletter, in the Books, reviewed, in the books Received sections of the Book Collector, Library Quarterly, The Library, <coughs> excuse me, and other scholarly periodicals traditionally associated with bibliography. And my sense of Sharp from its membership list is that the group is in fact made up to a very considerable extent of persons also inclined to join the Bibliographical Society of America or the Bibliographical Society of the University of Virginia, or at least to read the publications of these societies. When we began inputting the Sharp membership list into Roster, the Book Arts Press's database of, as of about 20 minutes ago, 9,774 persons currently tending to bibliographical pursuits, whether vocationally or avocationally, we discovered that we were getting a hit rate of well over 75 (coughs) percent. If we hadn't been here, many of us would have been in Worcester at the Sharp Conference, to a much greater extent than I think is generally realized The sharp crowd is the rare book school and bibsock crowds, writ a bit larger. There continues to be a certain amount of animosity, or at least distrust, between the new discipline-based book history folks and those who came up through more traditionally bibliographical routes, usually through libraries. But the distrust and animosity, I think, are diminishing. These are not terrific times for academic newcomers to the humanities-based disciplines. It is now also true that getting a professional job in a major rare book library is at least as difficult as getting a teaching job in an academic, English, or history department. And I detect an increasing acceptance of the principle that the friends of my friends are my friends. Those with historical interests have come increasingly to realize that they must look for allies wherever they can be found. The present mood of rare book librarianship seems to me to be one of cheerful pessimism. Many of you know Daniel J. Leeb, who is, as is his wife, Catherine Kaislieb of American Book Prices Current, a great friend of the book arts world, of the book arts press, and the rare book world. Kathy Leeb, incidentally, will be next year's Malkin lecturer. To listen to Dan Lieb talk, you'd think that the world was coming to an end, if not tomorrow at least and at the latest by uh, the beginning of the week. But Dan's infectious enthusiasm for this and indeed almost all other subjects undercuts the gravity of what he is saying. And you leave a conversation with Dan Lieb thinking, despite the terrible predictions he has just revealed to you, that the world may be making a fair go of surviving after all. Cheerful pessimism. For additional information on the cheerful pessimism of Dan Lieb, I refer you to Abigail Lieb who is in residence at Rare Book School this week as a student in David Seaman's course. Technological and social changes have hit research libraries and related institutions hard over the past couple of decades, and Rare Book operations have been on the front line of many of those changes. Let me list some of the major ones briefly. The current national enthusiasm international enthusiasm for digitizing rare materials or otherwise putting their contents into machine-readable form, and the increasingly widespread conviction that at least a significant portion of the nation's most interesting rare books and manuscripts are going to come under the scanner sooner or later, is causing almost everyone concerned with research libraries to rethink the ancient and honorable notion that the more books I have, the better I am. Furthermore, there is a growing conviction in library circles that the Codex book format is, or soon will be, obsolete, or at least obsolescent. And that digitization will substantially solve our acquisitions problems, solve our cataloging problems, solve our access problems, solve our preservation problems, solve the problem of global warming, warming, discover the principle of cold fusion, and cure the common cold. But meanwhile, the widespread introduction of online public access library catalogs, which includes the the holdings of rare book departments and other special collections, as well as that of the general stack collections, has notably increased the traditional in-house supervised use of rare book and special collections materials. Typically, in rare book libraries in this country, use has tripled within the past five years. The result is that persons who went into rare book librarianship because of an interest in history, a knowledge of languages ancient and modern, or a love of books as artifacts find their time increasingly being taken up by fundraising, learning new software systems, and coping with an environment in which increasing patron and management expectations are supported by decreasing staffs and decreasing budgets. For instance, academic library friends groups Almost all of them in this country, originally founded to support rare book and special collections departments with gifts and cash in kind, are being made to shift their focus from rare books in particular to the library as a whole. Money that used to help buy rare books and manuscripts, exhibition catalogs, and related publications now helps to buy electronic workstations, staff development, and provision for handicapped access. Meanwhile senior library administrators are ever more convinced of the principality excuse me senior library administrators are ever more convinced of the principle of the interchangeability of library staff parts well yes you were trained as an original monograph cataloger but now we want you to become a rare book cataloger We want you to do computer-assisted bibliographic instruction. We want you to set up systems. We want you to do market analysis. We want you to do fundraising. An acquaintance of mine told me her boss's expectations of what she does for a living now remind her of a Saturday evening post cartoon showing an irate customer at a complaint desk saying, what do you mean you don't sell used cars? What kind of a drugstore is this? The result of all this is to leave the average rare librarian in this country in a somewhat confused state. Like Alice, running harder and harder in order to stay in the same place. Like Dan Lieb, complaining a lot. But also, and also like Dan Lieb, finding it pretty easy to get up and go to work in the morning. In A small parenthesis. Some years ago, someone introduced me to a game called Friends of the Great, For example, I once had a student at Columbia who told me that his father once gave General Douglas MacArthur a light for a cigarette in the lobby of the St. Francis Hotel in 1947. A friend of a friend once had dinner in Princeton, New Jersey, with Albert Einstein's housekeeper. I had another student at Columbia whose first wife's sister was Jean Dixon's secretary. Friends of the Great... Now, as those of you who have been around Rare Book School or the Book Arts Press for any length of time are aware, I, too, have a weakness for prognostication. Here is one of my current predictions. Over the next several decades, American research libraries and related institutions will continue to increase the proportion of their general holdings that are in electronic and other non-book formats. Put another way, most of these libraries will begin to decrease the proportion of their collections that consist of printed books in codex format. Many, though by no means all of these libraries, will eventually begin to organize systematic programs of deaccessioning codex format books thought to be superfluous because their contents are so easily available in electronic form. The general stacks of printed books in these libraries will eventually shrink to a point where the care and administration of much of what remains will be turned over en bloc to departments of rare books and special collections. At this point, rare book librarians really will become keepers of printed books, and the general stack books and other printed materials in their care will, no doubt, be much better looked after than they presently are. The difficulty is that there will be constant pressure from above on rare book librarians, I predict, to reduce the size of their collections. They will be told that they can keep anything they want, but that it must now fit into a space which is, say, eighty percent of the space it currently occupies. At some point after this first twenty percent reduction, the same instructions will be reissued. Keep anything you want, but it must fit into a space eighty percent of the size that it currently occupies. In short, research librarians and libraries will be increasingly disinclined to keep their holdings of what they consider to be relatively uninteresting codex books. Rebound books, ugly books, books without pictures, books without local connections. There will be a lot of books around that nobody wants. Some will go to other libraries which are interested in manning ...in maintaining books in at least certain collections in their original formats. Some will be sold into the book trade. Some will, I hope, be given to the Book Arts Press. But a lot will go, I think, into sanitary landfill. Antiquarian book dealers are caught in many of the same tangles... ...as the ones to be found in rare book libraries and other research institutions... Most dealers did not go into the business of rare books because of an interest in email, or because of their love of the internet, or even because of their passion for hypertextuality. But, like rare book librarians, rare book dealers are increasingly finding themselves cut off if they do not keep up with the world's electronic innovations. It's my impression that, rather like rare book and other research librarians, and Korean booksellers are not generally enthusiastic about the current pace of of technological change. Nevertheless, again, like rare book and research librarians, they're making a game attempt to keep up. The Book Arts Press tries hard to maintain an an up-to-date list of the members of the Antiquarian Booksellers Association of America, the ABAA, in roster the database containing the names and addresses of persons with bibliographical interests that I mentioned before. Of the 445 ABAA members currently listed in roster, we have email addresses for 162, or approximately 36% of the entire membership. At the same time, incidentally, and mostly for the hell of it, I did a parallel search for members of the Grolier Club in New York City. Roster shows that the Grolier Club currently has 629 members, of whom a total of 135 have email addresses or 21% of the entire membership. Now, Roster is good, but it is not very good. I am sure that a considerably larger percentage than 21% of the members of the Grolier Club have email addresses. Roster doesn't have these addresses yet, neither, to be sure, does the Grolier Club. But they will soon enough, and so will we. Speaking from this podium, or one very like it, in a building next door... Speaking from this podium three weeks ago, Kenneth Rendell had some very interesting things to say in his 1996 Malkin lecture about changes in the way today's book collectors are collecting books. His lecture will appear in the 1996 Rare Book School yearbook, a copy of which will be sent to all of this year's participants in the school. Rendell notices a decline in what he calls technical book collecting, a decline in the forming of in-depth collections that include every possible edition, every possible state, every possible variant of a book within a collector's subject interest. And he thinks that romantic book collectors are on the increase, collectors who collect high-spot material, books that speak to them emotionally rather than intellectually. Put another way, these are objects speaking to collectors, not intellectual constructs. And I think that what ties us all together, rare book and manuscript librarians and crane book dealers, conservators and binders, academics with an interest in the history of authorship, reading and publishing, book collectors, students of the history of books generally, rare book school students all, what ties us most together is that our interest in the subject, whatever else it may be, does also encompass an interest in physical objects. We are concerned not only with pictures of objects or with words describing them, but also with the objects themselves, whether the object is a manuscript or a printed book, whether it is new or old, whether it was written for children or adults, whether it is a first or later edition, whether it is cheaply bound in paper or expensively dressed up in Morocco gilt. And this concern I think we must maintain, we must not allow ourselves the arrogance of thinking that any substitutional format is a fully adequate replacement for its original, whether photograph or microform or digitization or whatever comes next. For all we know, technological developments in two centuries will enable us to use the original manuscript of a Franz Schubert song, and hundreds of them survive, as a means of determining what Schubert had for lunch the day he wrote the song. This capacity is surely no more difficult for us to imagine than to imagine ourselves trying to convince, say, Thomas Jefferson in 1796 that visitors to his university two centuries later would complain bitterly because it takes 12 hours to fly door-to-door from the Pacific Ocean to Charlottesville. I think that almost everyone who deals seriously and honestly with old books from any point of view eventually comes to the same conclusion we must not deprive the future of the past. No society can or even wants to save everything it produces, and the artifacts of the past are always at risk. Some of Monticello's best bottom farming lands now lie under Interstate 64, the East-West Highway just south of Charlottesville. And Jefferson, who believed that the world is primarily for the present and the future, would have probably approved of this use of his land. Our collective task is to try to preserve an adequate sufficiency of the objects produced in the past in order to give future generations their own shot at interpreting and enjoying them. In our own world, I've always figured that the more we know physically about the books, manuscripts, and related materials we deal with, the better our chances of looking after them now and the better our chances of sending them on into the future in a sufficiently intact form. This is the conviction underlying both the development of new rare book school courses and the continued presence of old ones. Speaking of the continued presence of old ones, I want to give special thanks tonight to this week's rare book school faculty members. In the descriptive bibliography course, Tim Rogers is our baby. This is his first I hope not his last year as a lab instructor in the Descriptive Bibliography course. Dave Jenkins was Rare Book School's Goldschmidt Fellow last year, and this is his second time around, as a lab instructor in the course. Museum Superintendent Melanie Barber Charbonneau has been associated with the course since 1994 to its great profit, her husband, journeyman printer Brad Charbonneau, since 1995, David Gantz began teaching in the course in 1993. Peter John Burns and his wife, Kelly Tetterton, who were then just good friends, also began their relationship with Rare Book School in 1993. They joined the Rare Book School staff full-time as joint directors of activities a year later in 1994 and began teaching Desbib labs in that year as well. Richard Noble has been lab instructing in Desbibs both Virginia and New York City since the late 1980s and James Davis has been lab instructor and more recently bibliographical counselor at large to the course for more than ten years. I'm grateful to them all. Among the Rare Book School faculty members this week teaching their own courses, all or more or less all by themselves, Richard Landon is back for his second year at Rare Book School, and David Seaman is back for his fourth year, this year, this week, teaching his seventh course in the school. David Ferris began teaching the Rare Book School Desbib course with me in 1988. He began his association with the school in 1986 as a student, and since then he has been just about everything you can be at Rare Book School. Not only student and faculty member, but also assistant director of Rare Book School, associate director of Rare Book School, deputy director of Rare Book School, (laughs) god emperor of Rare Book School. (laughs) We could not function without him. Justin Schiller rejoins the Rare Book School active faculty this year after an absence of several years, but he has been teaching in Rare Book School since 1984. And at the end of the day tomorrow, he will have taught courses a total of five times in the school. Like Justin Schiller, James Mosley also began teaching in Rare Book School in 1984. He is the father of the Rare Book School Chapel this week. 1996 marks his tenth appearance at the school. By the end of the day tomorrow. This week's faculty will have taught a total of 56 courses in the school, an average of more than nine courses apiece, over an average of more than six years each. As a group, how could I replace them? What would we do without them? During a rare book school coffee break, it's easy to think that almost everyone on earth is interested in Aldous or Bowers or Lewis Carroll or Dido or Edmund Evans or Benjamin Franklin or at least Gutenberg. But we all really know better. I'm grateful to the faculty for continuing to put up with me and with you. This being said, I also want to say that a quarter of the Rare Book School faculty this year as a whole are teaching courses for the first time. I hope the school can continue to adapt to the changing circumstances and needs of the bibliographical nation. I hope in particular to be able to contain costs so that to begin with, the tuition we charge is as bearable as possible nearly two-thirds of rare book school students receive some sort of institutional subsidy to help them attend classes here, which is another way of saying that more than a third of rare book school students receive no subsidy of any kind whatsoever and have to pay their entire way themselves. If I can speak a little less formally for a minute here, I expect that rare book school 1997 will be four weeks as it was this year the strain on both staff and facilities of a five-weeks Rare Book School simply seems almost too great to contemplate. Those of you who received the Rare Book School Christmas card, uh, the Book Arts Press Christmas card, excuse me, uh, have heard me on this subject before, and there's a copy of it posted on one of the bulletin boards if you like to read old Christmas cards, bearing in mind that Book Arts Press Christmas cards are not like other Christmas cards. Last year, we began a tradition of running master classes under the Rare Book School rubric. Paul Needham taught a course in 15th century books, using 15th century books, at the Morgan Library. You must imagine eight students sitting around a table with a Gutenberg Bible in the middle, because that's what they did for a week. I could not have announced this yesterday, but I can now say that uh, we know that Paul Needham will again teach a rare book school master class at the Huntington Library next February. And we hope very much that Albert Relay will not only be back in rare book school in the summer of 1997, but will also be teaching a master class in codicology at Princeton sometime this winter. More on these as they happen. The Conservation Preservation Programme that was at Columbia, and that moved in 1992 to the University of Texas, seems to be in trouble. Paul Banks has resigned from the program. Roberta Pallette, the uh, director of the conservation labs there, has announced her resignation at the end of the year. Texas is in the middle of a search for a new dean of its library school, and if the new dean whoever it is decides to continue the school there's a good chance that it will indeed be continued and i hope that this happens but there's no guarantee of this at all there are a great many question marks if the texas school does not continue then i expect that rare book school will pick up some of the conservation preservation slack in particular i am confident that if all goes well paul banks will be back teaching in rare book school One is always to thank the University of Virginia for its support of Rare Book School. The hidden costs of hosting an institution like this one are immense, as all of you who do this sort of thing at home, and that's many of you, are well aware. Rare Book School could not exist without the enthusiastic support of the Alderman Library staff and of Karen Wittenberg, the university librarian in particular. I'm grateful to them all, and I hope you are too. It's no secret, for those who have been around here for any length of time, that rare book school always loses money, on occasion quite a bit of it. Slightly more than a third of the 330 persons expected to participate in rare book school this year also attended rare book school last year, and more than half of you have attended rare book school before at one time or another. So this is an old song to many of you I know. As it happens, 31% Of this week's 91 Rare Book School participants, and this includes everybody, students, faculty, evening lectures, and the entire staff, 31% of you are already Friends of the Book Arts Press, the support group that, among its many other virtues, picks up the annual Rare Book School deficit. I'm grateful to you all, Rare Book School could certainly not exist in its present form without the support of the Friends of the Book Arts Press. Now, to say that 31% of this week's Rare Book School participants are friends of the Book Arts Press is another way of saying that 59% of this week's participants are not friends of the Book Arts Press. Those among you who are not yet friends of the Book Arts Press and whose hearts are not made of stone (laughs) will find easy-to-read forms inviting them to become friends on the folding tables in the hallway outside the Book Arts Press suite. Which we now adjourn. Please come have a drink with the Rare Book School staff and faculty and tonight's evening lecturer in the Book Arts Press, Press Room and Environs.